Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Evan Kleiman. Evan Kleiman was chef owner of Angelie Cafe on Melrose for 27 years. She's the author of six cookbooks and has been the host of Good Food on KCRW for 15 years. That's approximately 6,500 interviews on every aspect of food and beverage. Her latest project is Easy as Pie, an app for the iPhone and iPad. Please give a warm welcome to Evan Kleiman. Thank you very much. I would like to introduce my friend Sang Yoon. I have notes just in case I forget about him. He was born in Seoul and raised in LA. He was the executive chef at Michael's in Santa Monica, a key restaurant of um, California cuisine, until he decided to give fine dining the boot. He was wondering what to do with his life when he detected an opportunity in a local bar, father's office. He made an offer, it was accepted, and all of us were flung into the world of amazing craft brews and no substitutions. <laughs> um, since that time, he opened his second father's office in Culver City, soon followed by Lection, finally doing something Asian. And um, he always has something up his sleeve. I, I love talking to Sang um, because I find him always really smart and really, really interesting, fascinated by things in the restaurant business that a lot of people don't even know are issues, let alone um, things that require solutions. But I thought we would start by going back into the way back machine since this is an opportunity to ask questions that I never asked before. So you were born in Seoul. How old were you when you came to the United States? United States. One, I was uh, the, the tender age of one. So uh, I don't have a lot of fond memories of Korea. And you came directly to L.A.? Uh, no, my, my parents took me on a sort of a like world tour, sort of like a band touring. It was, uh, we, uh, we hit up... Uh, Tehran, not a obvious. Uh, my, my dad is a pretty big um, published newspaper uh, media mogul, whatever you want to call him in, in Asia. And uh, he had friends all over the world. And we, uh, he was friends with the Shah of Iran. And we got to stay at his house. And uh, I got to eat like roasted pomegranates. And had when a, you were one? When I was one, yeah. Did uh -huh. it leave a mark? Uh, I, again, I have fond memory. I have a picture of me with the Shah. He's holding me. And he's, he, they gave me this crazy, like, weird, uh, I don't know what animal it's made out of, but it still smells like the animal. And it's a coat. I, and my, my mom still has it. It's sort of funny. But there's a picture of me, Shaw holding me. I think the animal might have been still alive when I was wearing it. <laughs> it really smells like, like a wild animal. Anyways, um, uh, Paris, where my mom spent a lot of time working. My mom worked for Chanel. She was a, a director of Ocotour of Chanel for 30-some years. So she worked in Paris back and forth, Italy. So... Uh, Leaving Korea, we just kind of did sort of a, a tour and then ended up living uh, here in L.A. And what neighborhood did you grow up in? It says a lot about a person, what neighborhood they grew up here. Uh, I grew up in Brentwood, and I went to school in Santa, Mo Santa Monica. West Side kid. Don't hate me for that. We don't East hate siders, you. Right. I'm sure there are West Siders here amongst us. I heard Randy from Silver Lake Wine is coming, and... After a couple of glasses, I get a hell of a lot more interesting. So if I start boring you, just be patient. It gets better. Um, what, what was your first entrepreneurial experience? Because I think of you as being somebody who is just a driven entrepreneur. 
uh, probably making fake IDs in high school. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is up, so I can admit it now. But um, you actually did this as a business. I can't get into details, but um, yeah, yeah, did do that. And then after that, there was something related to the surf. Oh no. Um, a friend of mine and I started uh, in college a, uh, a little company that uh, made snowboards. And it was when snowboarding was just kind of taking off. And uh, uh, it was a little group of guys, a friend of mine who's an engineering student and a friend who's, uh, you know, worked at an ad agency and me. And uh, we started this little company, um, did it for about three years, and then we sold it to Solomon. And uh, so it was a little college project. But yeah, it actually was like a legitimate business run by like 22-year-olds. So, okay, you were, you were a serial entrepreneur, really, really young. Where did food come in? When I, when I think of your bio and I think of your background, the fact that you went in a culinary direction seems like a direction not really geared to make your parents thrilled. No, to this day, the, the parents are still not thrilled. People say, you know, oh, your parents must be so proud. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, I think when you grew up in a Korean household, you know, I'm an only child. Um, and I, I think that they thought, I don't know, they think they had loftier goals for me. Um, I think back then there was no such thing as a famous chef, or, you know, except Chef Boyardee. I don't know. <laughs> He's still famous. Um, but... Yeah, there was, they, they thought it was just like a very, uh, I was just going to go do manual labor. I was going to, you know, they, they literally said when I told them I wanted to be a, sh when I wanted to cook, they said, You're, you want to be the help? Well, if you put it that way, <laughs> no, but. Um, well, what was it that made you want to do that? Did you have an experience of cooking at home? Who was the influence that pushed you there? Okay, there were no culinary influences in my house. No, uh, no one in my family <laughs> cooks well. Um, I, in fact, my mom cooks incredibly poorly, like piss, like horrible, like no one should be su subjected to this. I know. Oh, I know. It's horrible. Really sad. Um, it's, it was a combination of survival, like having to like learn how to make food that's actually edible. And around, I would say 10 years old, I kept having this reoccurring dream of uh, this feeling of being really stressed and observing this party. And the party looked like something out of the scene from the Titanic. It was this uh, really old wainscoting room with big iron chandeliers and cut crystal and people dressed in tuxedos and this you know, really fancy scene that probably took place 100 years ago that I never understood because one, wasn't old enough to be part of something like that and I wasn't into old movies and I don't know where this scene played from. So... I'm not a big believer in past lives, but there's something that just kept replaying. And my role in it was unknown. All I know was I was watching the dining room and I was panicked <laughs> all the time. At 10? Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of poetic because that's what my life is like today. <laughs> Minus the chandeliers and the cut crystal and the tuxedos. But yeah. Some wainscoting. Yeah, whatever. But uh, my version of wainscoting. But yeah, but I'm panicked every day. So it's sort of I've lived that dream if in a way um so did you did you start as some of us do by just talking your way into a kitchen and starting to cook or did you go to school uh my 
my, my history with culinary school is horrible. Um, I skipped 12th grade because I technically graduated high school after 11th grade. I didn't have to go back. I asked my parents if I could go to culinary school, and they sort of begrudgingly agreed, saying, here's the deal. We'll let you go do this. And they literally thought it was a phase I was going through. So my dad's like, yeah, let him go. He'll, he'll get over it. It's, let him, you know. Let him try this, and he'll, uh, he has the attention span of dry toast, so he's not gonna, it's not going to last. So um, I went to culinary school in San Francisco, and did you get beer? Well, I don't drink wine. Why did I get wine? All right, anyways. Um, Rand, Randy, oh, Randy. Randy Hi, Randy. Where's you? Randy? waving okay um so you had the attention of this the span of attention of dried toast yeah no so i went to culinary school in san francisco and uh in within four months i was thrown out for being a total dick 18 year old with an attitude and um this imagine is, the story was that that they made you wear the hat the the pleated paper hat that's a foot tall in a regular classroom with a chalkboard uh not in a kitchen but in an actual classroom and this is what it looked like when, when you wore the hat and the instructor was drawing something on the board, everyone was like craning around each other's heads, trying to look around each other's paper hats. So I thought, well, why don't I just take the hat off so people could see behind me? And they told me I was out of uniform. And uh, I tried to plead my case with logic. N nothing doing. So um, they said I was out of uniform. I had to put the hat back on. So the next day, same class, I took the hat and I rolled it up like a sailor beanie, like a little yarmulke. So I was technically still wearing it, but now people could see over it. Now that didn't go over real well either because now I was making a mockery of their uniform code. So then the next day, I wore the hat upright, but on the back side, facing the rest of the classmates, I drew like in magic marker, a big sad face, crying, said, I'm sorry. And everyone was snickering, and so then they, then they saw me. Yeah. Because of your human humanitarian generosity. Yes, my, uh, yeah, my uh, pioneering ways. Um, so for that and for other reasons, well, the, the last row was that um, I, I had run out of paper hats because I had to face them all. And I had to go to a, an actual kitchen class, and I didn't have any more paper hats. So I took an extra neckerchief, which is basically a bandana, put it around my head, covered my head, Basically, I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I've, I've covered the, re the requirement here. I, I, I've improvised, I've adapted, I've, you know, I'm good. And no, that wasn't, I was out of uniform again. So uh, my lack of ability to conform to the hat code got me thrown out. And the, the quote, the, the dean was a woman. The, the, great, the great quote is, when she threw me out, she says, it would be really nice if you weren't here anymore. Wow. Okay. But so where did you go cook after that? Who taught you? <laughs> I, uh, I moved to New York. I moved to, uh, Hyde, I w I moved to Hyde Park, New York, uh, just outside Poughkeepsie. Um, I called uh, CIA, uh, the school, uh, and uh, I asked if you had to wear a hat in class. <laughs> and they said no. And I said, okay, I'm on the next flight. Um, so I transferred schools, and then there was the ice carving incident. Are we, are we going to talk about the ice carving if you want incident? To. incident? Yeah. Do um, we want to hear about the ice carving incident? Of course. The, the uh, this is at, at CIA in the I don't know early, no late eighties. Um, we had a, a 
I was actually a pretty good student. We had an ice carving class, and dead of winter, the class was outside. So they give us like fucking chainsaws and ice picks, <laughs> and we're outside, and we're in parkas, and we have big blocks of ice. Um, there was this kid in our class, this Japanese kid. He was like fucking Rodan. There was nobody who, <laughs> he was unbelievable and so far and above everyone talent-wise. Uh, for his final project, he made a, uh, no joke, it must have been 20 feet squared. He made a scale model uh, streetscape of Paris <laughs> out of ice. Down to the buildings, the trees, the Arctic, e e like so accurate. Unbelievable, like street signs, like you know, like you could go, oh look at the eighth arrondissement, look, and out of cut out of ice, it's unbelievable. So um, one night, well, they displayed it in front of the school. It's an old monastery, and they kept it outside, and there's shine lights on it. And uh, I guess I'd been drinking with some friends one night, and I was walking across the front of the school, like at four in the morning, with my chisel kit from the earlier, and. Um, I got inspired and I recarved the Eiffel Tower into a very phallic. Yeah. Added some balls. Yeah. And uh, what's funny was nobody saw me do it, but then everyone knew I did it. Sort of. It's did like, what they proof kick you, do you out? Have? Did you get um, kicked out of this school? I wasn't kicked out, I was encouraged to leave. Big difference. And uh, they said, uh, I probably need to go work for someone I respect, go get some more practical training. and they wanted, they wanted you to work for someone who would beat you. Yes. Yeah. So I got a nice letter of recommendation uh, slash, you know, don't let the door hit you in the ass. Uh, and I moved to, I tried to move to Paris. Um, I tried to go work for Joe Robuchon uh, to get a unpaid, you know, stage for six months. And uh, there were none. There, there was a waiting list uh, to, to get in and, you know, everyone wanted to work there at Jaman. It was the greatest restaurant in the world back then. Um, so I ended up hanging out in Italy for nine months. I lived on a farm picking olives. Not olive bush, but olive tree. Um, in the eastern end of Emilia Romagna. And I, it was a friend of our family. They had a farm and I just literally hung out there. I had to make risotto uh, every night, almost every night, with porcini mushrooms, which you get sick of if you live there. It's an old cast iron pot, like a witch's cauldron. You hang it up over a wood fire outside and uh, the way you control the fire is by kicking dirt on it and I think now I learned why you have to stir risotto when you can't turn the flame down you have to just keep stirring <coughs> so I learned the very rustic way of uh, you know sausage making all this stuff very incidentally wasn't planned wasn't part of my uh, career trajectory and then I finally got the call from Jamin to come work so I got I got my apprenticeship so let's we, we don't have a ton of time. This could go on for hours, this conversation. So let's jump ahead. You are a chef at Michael's in Santa Monica. And you have decided that you're done with this phase of chefing for somebody else in this kind of environment. Talk to us a little bit about why you felt that way, what the decision was uh, in the late 90s um, chefs of my generation uh, the Josiah Citrons and Neil Frazier's all of our this city's best chefs who are my peers my friends we all talked about um, 
being chefs in LA and what it was like to constantly be chasing the, the New York and San Francisco. We were a complete third-rate city when it came to fine dining. We didn't have our identity. Uh, and fine dining was tough because we we're all trained to be in fine dining. We we're all trained to make food really pretty, cut everything really small and you know, have white tablecloths. And this, this was the environment we were trained to be in. And yet, for some reason, this city didn't cultivate that audience. And I kind of associated to not having any theater culture. I always said, if there's like a theater culture, there seems to be a, a fine dining culture. Um, and I, I just said, there, I don't think there's an audience for this. So I wanted to do something different. And the question that I asked myself was, how come people who have my training only make fancy food? Why can't we make food that's more accessible? Um, I, I, know, I didn't see any example of anyone in my shoes doing that, but that's the question I asked, and that's how this began. Do you think that you felt really comfortable making that switch because of the time that you had in Italy? Time what? You had in Italy. Oh, no. Um, the, the inspiration for it was when I lived in Europe, the only places I ate were in brasseries, bars, tapas bars, like really casual places. I didn't eat in Michelin star restaurants. I was a kid. So I literally lived in these hole in the wall places that were awesome. And I, I just had these incredible memories of, you know, really great food cooked by not f real chefs, but not famous chefs, um, but in really fun, casual environments. And I just wondered why we didn't have that here. So one day you were walking along and you looked up at the sign, a great sign, and literally did a light bulb go off over your head? Um, the story with Father's Office is what happened in 1995. I'd been a regular at that bar because I'd been, I worked at Chinois, Maine, in Santa Monica, then Michael. So it was my local watering hole. I still live in Santa Monica back then. And I became friendly with the owner and I planted a bug in his head in 95 saying, if you ever want to retire, call me. I don't know why I said that. But in 1999, he called me. I was actually in Spain in a tapas bar in Southern Spain, Andalusia, having some chorizo, and the phone rings, and it's him. He says, hey, uh, give me a call. So uh, three months later, I had the keys, and I left my job. I was running Michael's LA in New York at the time. And without a plan, I decided I'm going to take over a beer bar without a kitchen. Weird segue. Don't understand it myself. And, and I just, okay. So you take over the beer bar, and you go in and... How much did you have to change it? Well, it didn't have a kitchen, um, and it needed a good cleaning. I don't know if you've ever been to father's, the old father's office back in the day. It was a pretty dirty place. Uh, it smelled like beer. Yeah. And you wanted to have a bar that didn't smell like beer. I tried not to, yeah. I wanted a nicer place. Um, I didn't do much. I just added the kitchen, just fixed the bathroom, really. And... Uh, just opened the, opened the doors after a couple months. and uh, Did they have it. all those taps there before? They had taps, but I changed them. I added more and created a new tap system. I'm kind of a geek when it comes to these things, so I wanted a really, really precise draft system that treated beer with great respect. Did you... Were there any beers that were still being poured once you had it that were being poured before? Yeah, Father's Office before me was one of the only places to get really good beer. I mean, LA d didn't have a good beer culture. We didn't have, now like every place has good beer. Back then it was like everyone had Bud, Coors, Miller, Corona. Father's Office was the only place, that, one of the only places, you can count on one hand the places in this entire city where you can get a good selection of uh, small, small producer beers. And that was one of the most famous ones. And I just have to tell you that part of the, 
relationship that Sang and I developed way back then came about because I don't drink wine. Wine really hates me for whatever reason. And I was a beer drinker, but I didn't really know a lot about beer. And so Sang diagnosed my situation pretty immediately. Lightweight. And he, yeah, lightweight. And he took me on as his like project. So I became a mentee and I had this incredible mentor to say, no, don't take, let me take that bottle out of your hand and here, have this bottle. And I said, I can't drink that whole bottle. That's like a really giant bottle. Do you remember? And I drank this whole bottle of beer and I was so happy. And he says, you know, you drank the equivalent of a bottle of wine. I'm like, really? But wow, this is great. So, um, Who wants to say that again right now? <laughs> she, she's very different. <laughs> um, but I want to talk a little bit about the inventor side of saying, because it's also a part of him that I find absolutely fascinating. And he says with the throwaway line, oh, I'm a geek, I had to play with the taps. But he's like a, um, a hobby engineer, in a way. You're like a mechanical engineer, in a way. You're const- he is constantly... There are so many things in restaurant kitchens that everybody takes for granted. There are so many back-of-the-house systems that we all have that everybody just orders them off the rack and it's all the same and you deal constantly with things breaking down and um, you're constantly dealing with plumbing and mechanical systems and refrigeration and you're at the mercy of the restaurant business's version of car mechanics. And Sang sort of takes this as a personal gauntlet to be thrown down to fix these systems but he doesn't really share it with anybody. Like, like, have you taken out any patents? Uh, no, no patents yet. Pe- people always ask. Um, but I think um, creativity. Um, I always tell people cooking in a restaurant isn't creative. It's uh, anyone who dreams of having a restaurant or being in the food business. The creative side is such a fractional percentage of what you, I do, coming up with new dishes. It sounds all very romanticized, and it does happen. Um, but I always like to look at when, when cooking goes from hobby to business, uh, it's no longer art. It's manufacturing, and restaurants are just manufacturing plants. I'm not graded by critically by an original piece. No one tastes something that I made the first time. You're tasting something that the machine of the restaurant recreates hundreds of times a day and has to replicate accurately with consistency each and every time. That's manufacturing. And the better I am at that, the better reputation I get. So I have turned my attention to the notion that I have to build a better machine that produces the food. Um, And that's what this is about is it's, it's, it's trying to apply creativity uh, and thoughtfulness to how a restaurant operates, not only you know, because it's a really tough business and uh, the people who work in it, you know, get burned out. And it's, it's, it's a tiring. Evans that been at it. What? How many years? 30, well, not 40, anymore. 27, 20, 27 years. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I'm in year 13 of my uh, being, a, being my own, having my own places, but um, yeah, you, you, you have to learn how to do what you do better or, and make it easier on yourself. Otherwise, yeah, it gets, it gets overbearing. So um, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to make a, build a better mousetrap. 
Okay, I just have to say one of one of my like moments where I just walked in and I went brilliant. Sang has a test kitchen at Helms, and um, where he you know does research and plays. And I walked in and I saw this sink and I said, "That's interesting. Tell me what that sink does." And you should know. Let's preface this by. Restaurants spend hundreds of dollars every month on ice that is not put in beverages. Ice is necessary in the preparation of food to keep it safe and healthy. Oh, what does the sink do? Uh, I invented. A <laughs> um, we have to cool down lots and lots of product, uh, stocks, soups, lots of liquids, just anything we heat. We have to rapidly cool it down because um, there's health codes that we can't keep things hot or warm for any long period of time. So uh, like Evan says, we go through hundreds and hundreds of pounds of ice every day. Um, and I wanted to create a system where we didn't we minimize that. So I invented a sink that chills water to freezing and recirculates it. So that the water, because ice is water and energy. It takes electricity to create ice, takes power. But the problem is when ice melts, it can't regenerate its cooling capacity. It just turns to water. There's no way to regenerate. It goes down the drain. Um, so my sink is refrigerated. In fact, it's, it's a freezer. And it freezes water. And then when it gets warm, it leaves, gets cold again, then comes back cold again. So it regenerates its power never using any more water. So I have a finite amount of water. I fill the sink once, and I can leave it in there for three days and never have to add ice. So we save water, labor, energy, resource, you know, everything. So uh, cool. just an interesting example. But yeah, but that doesn't, you know, that, that's the thing is like, that's kind of a triumph for me, but you guys don't see that. It's just, it's very private. It's, it's my own little, like, I'm, that's probably the thing I'm the most proud of, not the burger. So let's talk about the burger. Let, let's talk about the word gastropub. I had the occasion to interview April Bloomfield, who owns a Spotted Pig and a couple of other places in New York City, who um, has been written up a lot about <clears throat> the woman who brought the gastropub to the eastern part of, of the United States. Um, and I asked her what a gastropub was in England. And she gave me an interesting reply. She said it's very much related to the local, the actual historical pub that was in your neighborhood for years and years and years, went downhill, and then was reanimated by younger creative people. <clears throat> younger creative people. And I thought to myself, aha, you actually were like the first person. You, were, you did it before April. Yeah, we did it. Uh, we opened three years for Spotted Pig. And this idea of a gastro pub where the gastro and the pub are equally important, correct? Yeah, I um, when I started Father's Office, when I when I was, you know, like I said, it was more about what I was getting away from rather than when I was running to. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I had no idea what the there was no plan. And um, someone told me you're opening a gastro pub. And I thought that sounded like a stomach ailment. It didn't sound, I'd never heard that with like a what? Like, can you take a pill for that? Um, so it was uh, not a, uh, something I was familiar with. I, I just heard that after I started doing what I was doing. And so let's talk a little bit about that. The fact that I, I love, I love the fact that 
in this day and age, it just seems like a lot of restaurants are are planned, like gastropubs are set designed to look like they were a local, and they create these backstories of people who don't exist, whose detritus is all over the walls, and there's books that this person who didn't exist may have read, and and um, so what fascinates me is how your story is just, you just sort of put one foot in front of the other, just made one decision, then another decision, then another decision. You're a perfectionist, and you're an obsessive tinkerer, so each one of those decisions, I would say, was lingered over. But let's talk about the burger, because everybody wants to talk about the burger. <laughs> I remember when you were sketching out the burger, and you did like a, an explosion, like it was an architectural drawing of all the parts that come together in a burger. So sort of discuss how you went through that, that decision tree to come up with what you have. Uh, um, there was no intention to serve a burger at Father's office. There was no plan. Uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you serve a burger? And I was like, okay. Um, I had been keeping uh, a, an in, informal diary of burgers that I've eaten around, the, around everywhere in the world that I've been. Um, and I, Excel, I put it onto an Excel spreadsheet and, and I diagrammed all the parts, bun, meat, cheese, produce, sauce. And I found, I tried to find a commonality between the things I liked. And what I found was I liked bacon. <laughs> That's what I learned. Now this was in a world where bacon was not a character on its own populating the universe. Uh, and then I, I look for some influences from, not from burger, I mean, at the time there weren't anything, there was no place that served gourmet burgers. There were some overpriced burgers, but there were no like chef driven burgers or with anything, any particular kind of special meat or special cheese. It was pretty, it was either fast food or something that should be fast food, but cost twice as much. And there was nothing in between. So uh, there was nothing to model it after. So I just looked for inspiration. Um, a key inspiration to the Father's Office Burger is French onion soup. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite things. And the reason is it's beef, it's bread, it's Gruyere cheese, and sweet caramelized onions. So people always ask, where'd, where'd, you, where'd that combination come from? It came from a soup. So one of the things I had to draw influence from was not other burgers, but some of my favorite experiences with beef. Um, my favorite beef experience is a dry-aged ribeye at Peter Luger. Awesome. But putting dry-aged beef, you know, you can't grind a dry-aged ribeye and put it in a burger. It'd be like $80. So uh, I found a way to actually do it. And now, today, Father's Office has a room, its own like little facility where it dry-ages meat. We, we go through 4,000 pounds of chuck a week. We hang it all up. It's its own facility. So we literally treat our beef like it's being dry-aged for steak. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's little known. We don't go talking about it, but it's, it's a step that nobody else takes. It's an incredibly costly, uh, labor-intensive piece of the pie that, that I think makes the, the, the beef the star of the show. And uh, I, I didn't want it to be condiment-laden, and I wanted it to be stand on its own. So um, we still do that. We never compromise that. 
Okay, so we're talking about the, the burger, and you know where the conversation will lead. The conversation will lead to the, the mandated lack of ketchup. <laughs> Sang once told me as we were sitting in Father's office, watching the line go out the door, and he said, you know, some homeless person could really make a lot of money by selling ketchup packets <laughs> to people standing in line. Why, why did you do this? Oh, uh, the, the ketchup? Uh, okay. Uh, once again, there was no intention to not serve ketchup. I simply forgot it. In the beginning, I forgot to buy ketchup. Um, I wasn't going to put it on the burger, but I figured some people might ask for it for fries. Um, but I was really busy. I was just opening this new kitchen. I had three employees, me and three employees, total, front, back, everything, one cook. Tiny, you know, father's office in Santa Monica's shoebox. And the kitchen in there is literally smaller than the kitchen in my house. It's no it's joke. It's like half the size of a food truck. Oh, it's, it's... I mean, my kitchen was like a food truck. Yours was like, like minuscule. A, like a phone booth with a stove. That's <laughs> uh, what I called it. Um, so a guy comes in, first night, serving the burger. Says, can I have some ketchup? I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any. I couldn't even finish saying that. He just like just started in on me. He's like, "What the fuck are you talking?" Just like hammered me about not having ketchup. So I said, "Fine, if you're going to be a dick about it, I'm not going to give it to anybody." <laughs> so one guy ruined it for everyone. No joke. So I was just like, "Yeah." And, I'm not and gonna- the sentence: no substitutions, modifications of any kind is now on. Every new restaurant menu of a certain generation of chefs. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I have to say, coming from a restaurant in which people would give us recipes and, and we would make it for them. I mean, you know, somebody, when, when you sit at a restaurant and you say, I'll order this pasta, but I want it without the garlic and I'd like twice as much mushrooms and no shrimp, but instead give me the tuna. I mean, that is giving the kitchen your own recipe, <laughs> just so you know. Um, I find it really incredible that um, young chefs have the confidence and the passion to do this because a restaurant really, a chef-driven restaurant, is is a point of view. You are coming, you're sitting down at the table, you're picking up a menu. That's somebody's point of view. And hopefully you will really love it and come back and enjoy it. It's so it's not their point of view, but seen through your eyes. You are you are getting that's the fun. You're getting to go on this little ride. And um and I like it, you know? Even though sometimes I, I wish there actually I've gotten used to having Fries with no ketchup because of you. Well, fries and, you know, fries, French fried potatoes originated in Northern Europe where they're traditionally eaten with a mayonnaise-based sauce. So I just decided that's what I wanted to stick with. So um, uh, was it last year I wrote a, a piece for the LA Times on how to make ketchup, um, which is really ironic. Um, but, um, I, and I homemade ca- ketchup is never the same. No, no, it always sucks. Um, but um, I, I kind of chronicled the, the sort of journey that ketchup took because ketchup started in China and Southeast Asia and they got brought over by the British. That's an interesting and it's a derivation of language. But um, ketchup and potatoes started in completely different parts of the world and they kind of 
came together here at a drive-through. I don't know how that happened, but um, but the whole no substitutions thing was never an ego thing. I wanted. You know, I can say that now because everyone, when, when people are beating on you and 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 calling you all these names, it's uh, you know, you don't want to get defensive about it. But you know, it's been a long time, so I, now I can say, look, it, it wasn't, it was never some you know desire to be you know uh, have you know this monolithic view on how something should be. But um, the, the 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 business I started was tiny, and there was simply no way uh, for me to take a tiny menu like that and have different versions of everything it was just not possible. And the fact that we're still a bar, I always looked at Father's Office as a bar that served food, not a restaurant with a cool beer list. Uh, and I still look at it that way. And um, I just thought to myself, if I always look at it that way, I don't always have to modify things. And believe me, I've made my share of modifications for people in my career more than enough. And uh, I thought it'd be okay. I thought, okay, if it shouldn't be a big deal, and then it turned out to be a big deal. So again, sorry. I, I, I'm a person who actually goes to father office, father's office a lot and doesn't order the burger because there's so many other good things to eat. So um, talk to me a little bit about um, the other food that you love to create for the office and also your need to go beyond the office and beyond what that grouping of foods is to create luxury. Well, outside the burger, Father's Office was influenced by three businesses. Well, there, it was a, a Parisian brasserie, a Southern Spanish tapas bar, and uh, an Italian enoteca. And the, the, the pieces are, I love the convivial, friendly environment of a tapas bar where you could go in for a drink, a snack, for dinner. There was no rules about it. It wasn't a set thing where you had to be seated, you order an appetizer and a main and a dessert and a check and no. Um, and I love the bustling, kind of fun, uh, sort of um, Parisian brasserie. Just, I love the energy of those, those places. And I love the sort of stylishness of the Italian wine bars that were on street corners where you have like beautiful women sitting outside sipping wine and having charcuterie and cheese. And I was just very enamored by the visuals of that. And I thought those three elements is what Father's Office is. So our food reflects that. It reflects casual Europe is really our, our core influence. And then the noodle place. Oh, Lakshan. Lakshan. Those of us who are from a Jewish background. Like me. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, grew up with our bubbies or our moms serving us Lakshankugel, which is noodle pudding. So when a lot of us heard that Sang was opening a restaurant called Lakshan, we were like, huh? A deli? <laughs> but you had a secret bubby. Yeah, I grew up um, here, um, and I had lost all my grandparents by age four. So by the time I was in kindergarten, no grandparents. So um, my parents at some weird school open house thing, met this um, woman with flaming long red hair, raspy voice, lived off Fairfax, uh, was a regular at Canners, and had grandkids my age in my kindergarten class. Somehow found out I had no grandparents, so she, on the spot, no like swearing in ceremony, nothing, just immediately declared herself my grandmother. And so it would be for, for yes, for, uh, yeah. Uh, so she literally took that role 
and was the first culinary influence. She's a, she, she didn't so much teach me how to cook, but she taught me the difference between ordinary and special. Case in point, I'd get dropped off at her house. She lived on Ogden, right behind the old ore box, which is now the Peterson wow. Auto Museum. Yes, yeah, so I'd go to her house, and she had this neighbor named Esther, another Jewish lady. Um, and one day I was dropped off at her house, and there was a pot of soup sitting on the stove, and I said, Bobby, you made soup. And she says, no, 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 that's Esther's soup. I said, are we going to eat it? And she said, no, uh, why not? She's like, well, Esther's soup tastes like the chicken sat next to the pot. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, and my booby had a secret that she always put a beef rib bone in all of her chicken soup. So cheating became a big part of my career. Uh, to this day... Uh, the first time I was in charge of a kitchen, actually, I started putting uh, veal shin bones into chicken stock. And one day, this young cook said, Chef, why are you putting... That's, that's chicken stock. I'm like, shut up. It's my... <laughs> Get away from me. Um, so I still do that. So she did teach me that. She also taught you a special thing about pork. Yes. Uh, m- my grandma Rose um, only ate pork in Chinese restaurants. Again, with a cheating character. And I asked her, I actually called her out on it. I was like, why, why? Why are we having sweet and sour pork? And she says, oh, God can't see us in here. <laughs> so I grew up thinking that Chinese restaurants were like safe havens from deities. You could be bad. You could like not finish your food, drink soda, whatever, do horrible things and get away with it. I still think that. <clears throat> you built this test kitchen. Um, what do you like to do there? What are some of your fun experiments that you've been playing with lately? Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have a, this space. It's a truly awesome commercial kitchen that has every toy imaginable, every little modernist trick toy you can think of. Um, and I equate it to a musician having their own recording studio. So it's a jam space. So I can actually bring friends over, other chefs, and we can like talk about stuff and play and share ideas. Um, and that's what I do in it. I, it's, I can be in it anytime I want because there's no restaurant attached to it. There's a little um, private patio that's attached to it. And um, we do little special events there. And Ev- Evan came to one where I did a Chef Chris Cosentino in San Francisco. He had his uh, book launch party. We did a nice dinner there. You're all invited. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a kitchen that's right across the parking lot from Father's office in, on Helms. Um, and it's just, it's just a space I can be in any time without having to worry about there being customers. And then there's no dinner service going on, which is an amazing luxury. So very fortunate. That's where the sink is. <laughs> How much time do we have? Six minutes? Six minutes. What should we talk about in six minutes? Do you have anything new on the horizon you'd like to share with us? Top secret. Okay. Never mind about that. Sure. <laughs> Just That's between what they us. All say. <laughs> um, what I do, do have you... a top secret project. It is top secret. Wh- I can share that it's top secret. What it involves you... really famous people. It's top secret. It's totally top secret. Don't torment people. <laughs> um, I actually saw one of the famous people and I said. I have never kept such a top secret this long ever before See, in my Evan life. knows. Supplier with alcohol. Maybe it'll slip out. <laughs> no, it won't slip out. Um, Randy, foie gras, out. Foie gras ban. Oh, foie gras ban. Who likes foie gras? Who thinks it's cruel? 
Cool or cruel? Cruel. cruel. Who thinks it's cruel? Yeah, oh, fuck those geese. Cru- yeah, there are whatever, some people yeah. who think it's cruel. No, I think it's a shame. I think... Uh, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the anatomy of waterfowl is very different than human anatomy, so they never they don't choke or gag or anything. You know, I can see I can see both sides of the argument. I just it sucks when I go to other cities and they have foie gras on the menu. I'm like, fuck, I can't serve that. I mean, you know, j- just let's talk about the anatomy for a little bit. If you, I ever- still have it, by the way. Yeah, I've got tons of it, so don't worry. I have a huge stash ready for the apocalypse. <laughs> so you're gonna get a hankering, just come over. When the earthquake comes, go to that tent. When the big one hits, come by. (laughs) I have foie gras. And I want to ask if you go to Surface for your kitchen toys. I do. It's uh, right next door. I get some, um, I don't know, what do I get there? I Uh, just love, if I have a free couple hours and I'm in that neighborhood, I love going there. It's like going to culinary toy Disneylandia. Yeah, it's nice having a little store like that so close to your restaurant. So if you, you know, feel the need to shop or, uh, or just, you know, you need something, it's right there. It's kind of cool. It's also cool to browse for ingredients. Every once in a while, I, I found a superb ingredient that I never thought of using because it, they were out on the shelves like that. And I could just literally walk around. Hi, I'm Jeannie. I wanted to ask you about your beer choices. Now that the beer universe has exploded and, and we have more um, local offerings does that uh, what what do you take into consideration in choosing like which beers to serve with what food and is it local fresh or are you looking for certain notes um la is now um uh home to many breweries where even five years ago that we had almost none we had like craftsmen we had some in san diego but la proper had nothing now we've got a lot of startups um breweries in my opinion in my experience, take time to get their legs under them. Um, when you first brew beer in a, in a new system, even if you've been brewing beer at home or whatever, it's, it's hard to get, get it right. And uh, it's in its sort of infancy right now, LA breweries. And you're not going to see them winning a lot of awards or anything yet. Um, one of my favorites so far is called Ladyface, and they're out in Agoura. Um, they're doing really well. They're making good stuff. Uh, I love seeing local breweries pop up. It's great for us here to, to solidify LA as a, as a place with beer culture. Um, I, my own personal palate le- uh, leans towards uh, Belgian styles, um, which is a trend in American brewing right now. Uh, rather than trying to mimic British styles, a lot of American craft brewers are trying to do the old, old guard stuff, the old Belgian stuff, like lambics, like wild fermented stuff. So it's nice to see uh, American brewers branching out. I also think that Belgian beers tend to be the most food friendly. Um, so that's, if you ever see me drinking, it's probably something Belgian or Belgian style. My absolute favorite, also her favorite probably, is uh, Russian River Brewing in Santa Rosa. We love them. Yeah. I have a huge stash of that stuff too. Uh, and he's really good at sour beer. Sour beer is another interesting little element. It's very lactic and um, sour beer tends to mimic the flavor profile of wine in that it's high in acidity. So it has the same pairing profile as wine does, where beer typically pairs very differently than wine. But sour beers, you should try sour beer. It's really, I, when, when Sang introduced me to the sour beers of Russian River Brewing, it was like an epiphany for me. Really, really 
incredible. Like if you say you hate beer, but you like wine, you'll probably like sour beer. Hi, I'm Peter Hong. Um, you mentioned that you just forgot the ketchup and that the no substitution thing came from limitations you had there. So now that you're big time and have resources, uh, what are sort of the pros or, or are there any cons to innovating and, um, it, you know, sort of discovering things maybe serendipitously or, or uh, is there a trade-off or is it just all good now? Are you asking if I'm doing substitutions now? <laughs> no, I think, I think it's more the idea of when you're, when you're new and you're, you're making new steps, a lot of things come that are serendipitous. When you are established and you have a reputation and you're successful, is experimentation. Maybe this isn't what you meant. Sometimes invention comes from not having something. So when you have resources, you find it harder now to be creative. No, I, I, I still tinker incessantly, uh, every day. I'm uh, mired in, I, I have that thing called, um, what do the psychologists call it? What are the ADD? No, no, that too, that too. Um, I, have, I, I suffer from uh, analysis paralysis. Yeah, I overthink things. That's, yeah, I'm doing it right now. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, 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 innovation to me is like just in my blood. I don't, I don't stop. It's both food and operation. It's, it's both because you can't just be creative in one side and not the other. So I think that's what's happened is like when you're young, you just want to be like, I want to make awesome food. And you don't think about the business side. But now you have to think of the whole enterprise. I've got 180 employees that I have to, and families and, you know, you, you know, big time, as you call it, just means that there's more responsibility and it's not just me anymore. So, uh, you know, you, you got to find a, a way to do what you do better. But really, it's for the people who do the real heavy lifting for me. I have to make their jobs easier because uh, I'm not the one peeling the potatoes and the carrots. But I've, I've got to try to find ways to, you know, it, it's a really tough business for the people involved. So, um I'm, I'm trying to push the envelope as far as, you know, restaurant operations. And at, at the end of the day, make making good food easier and better for everyone. Hi, my name is Andrew DeBlock. I live in Culver City, and I don't really eat at Father's Office anymore because I'm just addicted in a really unhealthy way to Luxon. And I always get the Dan Dan noodles, and every time I get them, they warn me about how spicy it's going to be ahead of time. But it's never quite as spicy as I expect. What's with that warning? That's because you're white. <laughs> I know, that's what I'm saying. I'm being like, they're looking at me and saying, oh, dude, he's not going to be able to... <laughs> yeah, we look at... Yeah, they're like, yeah, you won't be able to handle it. It's too white. I can't even see you, but I think you sound like a white guy. I don't know. But, but it's a very particular kind of spiciness. If, it's this, not... if Peter here said, oh, why do they ask me for... Dun, 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 why do they? No, then I'd be like, no, nah, sir, I'm sorry. I don't know why. I, my apologies. No, it's because... Um, no, we... Do you know why? Because Szechuan peppercorns are a weird ingredient that most people haven't. You know, if you go to P.F. Chang, you order Dan Dan noodles, it tastes sweet. It's like brown gravy. And we think still, I think still, that that's the baseline. That's the reference point. So we don't assume that people eat in the San Gabriel Valley and understand that ingredient. So sorry. Just ignore us. Hi, my name is Joseph Riola, and I have a question where... Dishes are different from restaurant to restaurant, whether it's modified, inspired, or copied. Is, if, is there a dish that you wish you could patent yourself or nobody else could produce it in their restaurant? Evan talked about this on a show not that long ago about uh, who owns a recipe or can you patent, you know, and, and it's, uh, lawyers have sort of juggled this subject for a while about can you patent a recipe? And um, the short answer is no. 
um, because you can make it subtly different and it doesn't take a lot to make something quantifiably different. Um, so I wish yet, we could patent it. And yes. yet there are dishes like people always refer to Keller's oysters and pearls. Um, there are certain dishes in fine dining that you can identify the lineage. Do you have such a dish? That's a great example, but here's, here's really the question. If Thomas Keller were to patent oysters and pearls, or I was to patent something, and you weren't allowed to make it, then how would you learn? So at some point, it's going to create roadblocks. So I don't necessarily agree with forbidding someone from making something. I think uh, ultimately, we're all cooked. Like, if you've been to culinary school, we're cooking Augustine Escoffier's food or versions of it. So it started somewhere and without replication, you don't have creativity. So as annoying as it is to have the burger copied or replicated by so many people, it's flattering slash annoying, but um, no, I wouldn't want to curtail creativity that way. Also, I would say that the success or failure of a restaurant is dependent on so many things that it, it's so much more than a recipe. The uh, another thing I did once is uh, as an experiment, I gave one recipe to 10 chefs, a written recipe down to the gram, and, I, and we all made the same dish, and there was 10 different dishes, one recipe. So the, the answer is that it, no matter how exactly you, you try to copy something, there's always going to be some personal influence put into it. It'll never taste the same. Uh, yeah, my name is Adrian Cray. I'm from Downey, so south side, not west side. But um, also, I was just wondering... Uh, do you think that uh, it's more important for people to really understand beer more than a business? And are you a firm believer as much as me uh, that a fried egg on top of anything just makes everything magical? So that's just my second question. What was the first part of the question? I didn't hear the... Oh, if it's more important, if you're looking to start up a, like a beer bar or... I like to call them just uh, local pub houses or public local houses because I hate the word gastropub. I don't like it. And... Um, do you think it's more important to actually understand beer and food, whereas, you know, if you have a passion for that versus the business side, what do you think is more important? It sounds like you're trying to open something. Well, I think you should be passionate about uh, what you do on every level, I I as many levels as you can get into. Um, I hated beer growing up, but then I learned to love it when I was living in Europe. But um, people who try to do get into w the work that I do, I, I always tell them that, it's got to stem from the work, not from the desire to make money, not the desire to be well-known, whatever. It's just an inc an, an, a desire to be completely immersed in it and never want to leave it. Um, it. The first two years of Father's Office in Santa Monica, I never left. I worked from 10 in the morning till 2 in the morning, seven days a week. I never left. Um, so I think you should get into as much of it if you want to cook. If you want to serve beer, uh, I, I always tell people who work with me, um, look to be a true expert at everything you do. Uh, I did this poll with my chefs uh, years ago, and I lined them all up, and I said, tell me what stainless steel is. And they all scratched their heads. And I said, it's funny you don't know that because your entire work environment is made of it. Your knives, the walls, the tables, and you don't know what it's made out of. And I, their assignment was, go find out what stainless steel is. Those are the kinds of details that I'm maniacal about. And I always tell people, there's no such thing as knowing too much about something. So, um, yes, learn about beer, learn about food, learn about everything that you, know, that you want to share. Um, 
the, the smarter you are uh, about what you do, the, the probably the better you'll be at it. Um, my my big pet peeve. Someone asked me earlier what my big pet peeve is. Is it when people look at the father's office business model, they think, oh well, I'll just put up a bunch of beers and serve a burger and it's all good. But the reality is, is the, the connective tissue behind what I do is all about uh, learning and sharing that knowledge, passing it on both from the staff and then on to the guests uh, and just, you know, keeping that thing going. But uh, uh, I, I don't think there's anything you shouldn't want to know about if you want to be involved in it in any way. Thank you, Sang Yoon, for taking out the time to share such a great evening with us. Thank you for coming.